as we consider the second feast uh, in chronological sequence, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, although very much connected with the previous one, the Passover. So from verse 6 of Leviticus 23 down to verse 8, it says, On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unto the Lord seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. And then just another couple of readings. Uh, first of all, could we go to Colossians 2? Uh, some of you that were not with us on Sunday, uh, we wanted to just uh, reiterate the basis for our approach to this uh, chapter in Leviticus, how we're seeing these as, uh, although they were holy days in Israel's calendar, uh, appointed by God for them to take time off work and to meet with him, but they were also prophetic of something greater. They were looking forward to something greater. And Colossians 2.16, I think, gives us clear authorization for taking this position where Paul says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come. But the body or the substance is of Christ. And so he says that all these holy days, festivals, were a shadow and the substance is Christ. And then uh, one other reference, please, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, we looked at this one in connection with the Passover. We want to see it again in connection with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where Paul is writing to a primarily Gentile church. Uh, if you remember 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about them in their previous, uh, to their conversion, how they were swept away or carried away to dumb idols, even as they were led. So their Gentile background, and yet he assumes in writing to them that they have a good understanding of Leviticus. And so verse 7 he says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, we believe God will bless those short readings to us as we contemplate this feast of unleavened bread. So, as we, we've considered that passage in 1 Corinthians 5, how the Passover and unleavened bread are linked together by Paul in one verse, uh, these events were very much connected. Uh, basically, uh, they're both memorial festivals. Passover was remembering the Passover lamb and what that meant for the nation of Israel, how it was the tenth plague, in a sense, on the nation, that all the firstborn in Egypt would die. And, uh, and for the nation of Israel, the firstborn uh, that were in the houses where the lamb had been slain and the blood had been applied was spared from the plague. And uh, they would indeed be delivered by God from the land of Egypt. 
because uh, at the end of the, that night, finally Pharaoh gave in and allowed them to leave. Uh, of course, the, the whole nation of Egypt is wailing, all the firstborn uh, in the land, from Pharaoh's household to the slaves, their firstborns are dead. And so there's a time of tremendous lamentation and mourning, and they're telling the Israelites to leave. They're even giving them their, their jewels, and they're trying to help get out of here. There's, you know, you've devastated us. We don't, we don't want you around anymore. Leave. And so there's this push to them to leave, but their leaving was in haste. And because it was in haste, um, they didn't have time to mess around waiting for bread to, to, uh, to uh, kind of the leaven or the yeast to, to rise. And, and so they were to take unleavened bread uh, with them. And so this is remembering uh, their uh, flight from Egypt and really the beginning of their pilgrim journey. And again, that's the picture that we're going to convey this evening, that in a sense, uh, applying it to us, once we come to know Christ, our, sacrifice, our, our Passover was sacrificed for us, in a sense, that for us marks the beginning of our pilgrim journey. Right? We, we no longer belong to Egypt. That night, they might have stood in Egypt, but they no longer belong to it. They were on their way somewhere else. The night you got saved, you no longer belong to this world. You actually belong somewhere else. You began your journey to your new home, right? The very first step, as it were. And you began a life of pilgrim character. And so that's what's being conveyed here. Now, again, I want to just stress that these two festivals very much go linked together. And I want to just show you that from the New Testament. Look at Luke's Gospel for a minute and chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 and verse 1 where uh, by the time we come to the, uh, the days of the Lord Jesus, these two uh, days have become almost inseparable. So you notice the wording of Luke 22 verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh which is called the Passover. You see that? It was they, They've just become one, really. And of course, one is on the 14th day of the first month. The second one begins on the 15th day and goes for seven days. And it's like they just run together. And, and so they're, they're kind of viewed almost uh, as the same event, maybe different sides of the same event. Also, as we look at, uh, at Leviticus 23, I want you to notice that um, the, the phrase, and the Lord spake in verse 1, seems to introduce new subjects. And so you get it again in verse 9, and the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying... You get it again in verse 23, the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying... And you get it again in verse 26, the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying... And you get it again in verse 33, the Lord spoke unto Moses. But uh, in our section that we've just read 6 through 8, are still in the original grouping of the Lord speaking to Moses and where he includes these two festivals together without introducing a new topic. And so clearly they're meant to be understood together. And we could just say this, that the one-day festivals in the, new t in, the, in the book of Leviticus, the one-day festivals always speak of some great act of Jehovah God, something great that Jehovah does. And the seven-day festivals are the outcome of the great things that Jehovah does. So we might say this, that, that 
Christ our Passover being sacrificed for us was a great event. It was the day that we were delivered from our sin and bondage and set free. But the outcome of that was a Christian life of holiness, pilgrimage, uh, feeding on the lamb, putting away evil, walking with God, right? In other words, the, the result was a changed life, right? The sanctification of the believer. When we get to the, the next seven-day festival, that will be the millennial kingdom or tabernacles. And basically it comes after the Day of Atonement, which will be the second advent of Christ. So the great act of Christ's coming is going to result in tremendous blessing uh, for, for a thousand years, isn't it? There's going to be an outcome of his return to the earth to rule with a rod of iron, to put everything right. There'll be a tremendous outcome. So the Seventh-day festivals are usually an outcome of the great acts connected with the one-day festivals. So we said that while the Passover is a type of the Lord's death, the seven-day feast of unleavened bread points really to the whole course and character of the Christian life on earth from the day of conversion until we reach the end of our journey. Okay, So it's really looking at the Christian life. And I think it has a very beautiful picture of the Christian life. And I'm going to just going to state it simply and then we're going to prove it as we go along. And, and a simple, the Christian life is pictured this way. Those that have known redeem, redemption by blood... What are they going to do now that they're redeemed? Two things. Feed on the Lamb. Right? For the rest of our Christian experience, what are we going to do? Feed on Christ. Okay? So they're going to, they're going to eat the Lamb. They're going to feed on the Lamb. And we're going to feed on the Lord Jesus. Hopefully tonight we'll be feeding on Christ. And then, as well as feeding on the Lamb, they are deliberately, consciously putting away leaven. And leaven in the Bible is always a picture of evil. And since the day we got saved, you know what getting saved did for you? It actually made you more aware of how evil you were and how much evil you had in your heart, didn't it? The closer you get to God, actually the more conscious you become of your own sinfulness, don't you? Isn't that, don't you think that's true? I mean, you've got examples. We sang that holy, holy, holy. Here's Isaiah the prophet. When he comes into the presence and sees a God who is holy, 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 we might have thought he was a good guy. But when he came into the presence of God, he didn't think that anymore. What did he say? Woe am I. Right? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I want to say this. The more intimate you become with the Lord Jesus, the more conscious you'll become of your own sinfulness. So it's kind of both encouraging and discouraging at the same time, isn't it? <laughs> but it's the way it is. The closer you get to the Lord, the more conscious you are of your own sinfulness. And so, we want to look at this. In fact, uh, if you want to, to put a scripture on it, I would say that this is 1 Corinthians 1.30. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, in terms of uh, our understanding of the work of Christ. We've seen the work of Christ in redemption in the Passover and when it comes to uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's the work of Christ in sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And it's that aspect of the sanctifying work of Christ in the believer's life.
So, feeding on the lamb, removing leaven. Let's look back at Exodus 12, what they were remembering. Remember, it's a memorial festival. And as we look at uh, Exodus chapter 12, I want you to just notice um, what happens to them. Now they've come to know Christ as their Passover was sacrificed for them. So we'll begin. uh, Of course, they're going to feed on the lamb, but I want you to notice how they eat it first of all. Exodus 12, verse 8 through 11 Speaking of uh, this lamb that they had killed and now they were going to eat it, they said, it says, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat of it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof or the inner, inner parts of it. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat of it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the first thing I want you to notice is that that night, as they were to feed on the lamb, after it had been sacrificed, its blood had been shed, it had been applied, and, and the angel of death had gone through the lamb. They were to eat this lamb. How were they to do it? Well, they were to eat it, as we said, as strangers and pilgrims. They stood in Egypt uh, that first feast, but they were no longer of it. It was no longer their home. Uh, in a sense, they just messed up their house, hadn't they? They put blood all over the doorposts and, and the lintels. They made a right mess of it because they're not going to be living there anymore. They're leaving that behind. In a sense, it's the end of that existence in Egypt. And so they're to eat it in a very sense of of strangers and pilgrims. Uh, A stranger is somebody who's just passing through. And they were just passing through Egypt. They didn't belong there anymore. And a pilgrim is somebody who's on their way somewhere else, going on a special journey. And that's exactly what was their experience. They're, they're just passing through Egypt. They're on their way to uh, a very special place. If only we could see ourselves that way. That would radically affect our life here, wouldn't it? If I could just see that I'm a stranger, I don't really belong here. This is not my home. It really isn't. Our citizenship is in heaven, isn't it? That's where, and, and you know, we get into all this politics and voting. We're ambassadors. Ambassadors don't vote in a strange land. Right? They don't belong here. You're not an American anymore. You're a child of God. I know that's hard for some of you, isn't it? Because you love this, you know, kind of uh, stuff. But got to leave it behind. We're strangers and pilgrims here. We don't belong here. And we're ambassadors. An ambassador doesn't even have the same number plates as anybody else, right? He's, he's a different individual. He lives for a different country. And that's how we are, strangers and pilgrims. And, um, you know, you've got a classic example in the New Testament of a couple that really understood living as strangers and pilgrims. Priscilla and Aquila. I would hate to have been their mailman, wouldn't you? I mean, every time you see them, they're, they're somewhere else. And it's not career moves. They're not moving up the corporate ladder for their moves. They're moving to establish new churches 
and the churches meeting in their house. And one minute they're in Ephesus, the next minute they're in Rome, and then they're in Corinth. And on each occasion, there's a church meeting in their house. They were strangers and pilgrims. That's how they lived. And Peter says, again, as he would apply this idea that's found uh, in Leviticus 23 and in Exodus 12, he would say to us in 1 Peter 2 and verse 11 that that's exactly how we're supposed to live. Not putting our roots down too deep, being willing to move at a moment's notice in serving him. Uh, he says in Dearly Beloved, verse 11 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And so, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. One hymn writer said this, The cords that bound my heart to earth were loosed by Jesus' hand before his cross I found myself a stranger in the land. And so we have to ask the question, are we living as strangers and pilgrims? Do we have that pilgrim character about us? Because that's how they were to eat it. And then, of course, uh, they were to partake of the lamb. And so it tells us back in Exodus 12 and verse 8, how they were to eat it. And of course, it was only those who knew as it were, Christ the Savior, who have known the delivering power of shed blood, who can feed on him and find in him the sustenance and satisfaction. And, and so it says that they, they shall eat in that night uh, the flesh roast with fire. But look back at verse 4 just to see something about the lamb. It says, If the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the souls. And then notice this phrase, Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Every man according to his eating. In other words, um, that what they're saying is, that, that appetite is a factor, isn't it? Like if we're having guests round, first of all, we think who we're having. And we have some people that come who have incredible appetites. Some people who live in the house have big appetites. But some that come, so it, depending on who's coming, determines how big a leg of lamb we're going to get for them, right? Because you don't, you don't do the leg of lamb bit, but you should. It's really good. It's actually the most delicious meat. But we do this leg of lamb thing. So, so depending on, on who's coming and their appetites, and, and the idea is this, that there's enough in Christ to satisfy every saint. But sadly, not every saint has the same appetite for him. Every man according to his eating. You know, there's enough in the person of Christ for you to spend the rest of your life going through the scriptures and finding Christ in all the scriptures and feeding your heart on him. And you'll never get to the end of it. In fact, if you spend your whole life doing it, when you get to glory, you're going to just say, like the Queen of Sheba when she came to Solomon, the half has not been told me. But how's your appetite to feed on him? Uh, and again, are we looking for that? You know that Paul had a phenomenal ferocious appetite for Christ, didn't he? Philippians 3.10, what does he say? That I might 
know him. And you say, Paul, what are you talking about? You're this, you've had more revelations than any other human being, pretty much. Of, and you're saying that I might... He said, well, I'm, I, I can't get enough. <laughs> I, I'm not satisfied. I want to know him better. Is that your heart cry tonight, that I might know him? The power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering, made, being made conformable to his death. You see, there's a man that had an appetite. See, the trouble with appetite is it can be developed or diminished. Appetite can be spoiled by junk food. Isn't that true? My wife would make lovely meals for our kids, and we could tell if somebody had been giving them candies because they'd come in, and no matter how good it looked, they just didn't have an appetite. Why are they been feeding on junk food? And the more we spend feeding on junk food, the less appetite we'll have for the real thing. And that's the problem of today, really, isn't it? That junk food is so readily available for every one of us. And so we need to make sure we have an appetite for the lamb, that we're interested in feeding on him, because that's going to be key to our spiritual growth. For them, this was nourishment for the journey. They were leaving in haste out of Egypt. They needed nourishment. They needed sustenance. And this was their nourishment for the journey. And what's your nourishment for your journey spiritually? How are you going to make it through the week? Why do you think we remember the Lord the first thing at the beginning of the new week? I'll tell you, it's to give us strength for the journey to get through the week. That's why we need to start feeding on Him, isn't it? Right? I want to be able to make it through the week. I remember when I was a new Christian saved out of the world and I had to be at every meeting of our assembly because I couldn't bear the thought being in the the godless environment that I was working in. I, I just didn't think I could make it through the week unless I was with the saints and feeding on Christ. And that's how our appetite ought to be. And then he says, verse 8, uh, that it should eat the flesh that night roast with fire. As we think of, upon the Lord Jesus and feed upon him, of course, fire would speak to us of the judgment of God. It's always used in, as a picture of judgment. And um, uh, we think of the true Lamb of God who passed through the fire of God's judgment. I want you to look at Lamentations for a moment in chapter 1. because uh, contextually, Lamentations 1 uh, is speaking of Jeremiah's uh, sorrow, in a sense, at, at seeing uh, the desolation of Jerusalem after all his preaching and weeping and all the rest of it. But in a very real sense, uh, we can see a beautiful picture here of the Savior as well. He says in verse 12 of Lamentations 1, Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Behold and see, is there any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord has afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger? From above has he sent fire into my bones, and it prevaileth against them. And we think of the Lord Jesus suffering on the cross, and the indifference of people. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? That's the hardest thing, isn't it? Indifference to the work of the Savior on the cross is hard to swallow, isn't it? Can you imagine for him the indifference? When, when God is afflicting him in the day of his fierce anger, and, and, and fire is coming, as it were, from above, and it's prevailing, and of course the Lord Jesus was indeed subject to the flame of God's judgment 
on our behalf and as we feed on him our minds go back to Calvary and we think of him enduring God's wrath against sin in his own body for us and uh, God intends us to ever keep that memory fresh in our minds not to forget the price the cost of our redemption when you look at Revelation 5 for instance uh, it tells us in Revelation 5 verse 6 I behold and lo in the midst of the throne and the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb and notice how that lamb is seen as it had been slain in other words it's, it's just like it's just happened God ever wants us to be thinking and remembering the freshness of what Jesus did on Calvary for you and I. That's important, isn't it? To keep that in our minds as he endured that wrath. And then he says in verse 8 of chapter 12, Eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. I was uh, preaching out in Iowa one time, Iowa, and uh, stayed with a guy, very interesting man, World War II veteran, and he grew his own horseradish, and he was very proud of it, and he wanted me to try it. Now, I, I like hot food, but there's a difference between horseradish hot and chili hot, and, uh, but he was intent that I tried so I tried it, and I want to tell you something. Not only did it make my eyes water, I felt like I'd been gargling in battery acid. I thought I would never taste food again. And uh, one of the chief ingredients in the bitter herbs that they would use at Passover was horseradish. And the idea was it was meant to bring tears to their eyes. And part of it was to remember their affliction while they were in Egypt. But from our perspective as well, is it not to remind us really in a sense of the, the terrible thing that, that caused my Savior to suffer like that. Uh, to make us conscious of, of our sinful past and our present unworthiness. And, um, and so there's a certain sense that there, it does bring, uh, and it should bring tears to our eyes as we think of what the Lord endured because of our self-will and rebellion. Notice the division of the lamb in verse uh, 9. It says, Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his, heads, his, le- uh, his head with his legs, and with his pertinence thereof. And of course, as we consider the person of Christ, there's different ways that we can consider him. We could consider his head. We could consider the, the wisdom of the Lord Jesus. And it's a wonderful. I mean, you could spend uh, years studying the wisdom of Christ. You know, how, how stressful it is to always be presented with loaded questions day after day after day after day it's really hard isn't it when somebody's out to get you all the time and no matter what you answer it's kind of the trap questions the Lord Jesus lived with that every day of his public ministry just seemed like everybody was out to trip him up and they'd come up with things like uh, you know should we pay tribute to Caesar what a loaded question if he says no well immediately they're going to go and tell on the Romans and say this guy don't want to pay taxes if he says, yes, well, the, the party that want to overthrow the Rome, the zealots, they're going to be alienated. And so it's one of these kind of situations where what do you do? You go one way, you offend one lot, you go another way. So he says, well, I'll tell you, give me the coin. Whose inscription is on it? That's a great question, isn't it? Caesar's. Okay, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And here's the punchline. Render to God the things that are God's. Whose image is man made in? Made in the image of God, aren't we? Even fallen man, right? Genesis 9. 
Are you giving to God that which really you should because you, you bear his image? What a tremendous wise answer. And uh, he, he was a master at it. And, and you could spend a lot of time thinking about the wisdom of Christ. The legs would imply the walk of Christ. Amazing conduct that he could walk and be known as the friend of sinners and never be influenced or contaminated whatsoever. And yet to be able to raise them up in a sense out of the dunghill. What an amazing uh, walk that he had. And then to think of the inwards, the affections of Christ. Uh, I have in my library a wonderful book on the emotional life of the Lord Jesus. Written by a couple of Church of Scotland guys. And uh, just amazing. And uh, again, there's so many aspects that we could think about. Notice too, in verse 10 it says, You shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. Of course, uh, they didn't have any refrigeration, so if there's anything left of the, the, the over of the lamb, from a practical point of view, uh, corruption would set in, so the idea is you burn it, we don't, because there's no corruption in him. But also the idea from our perspective too is that yesterday's thoughts of Christ are not enough for today. Right? We need fresh manner every day. Isn't that the idea? That, that you need fresh thoughts of the Lord Jesus on a daily basis. Just because you had a great time in the Word yesterday, not going to do you for the rest of the week. <laughs> You've got to go back again and get some more, right? In the morning and, and have it fresh and enjoy the freshness of it. And then it says in verse uh, 11 that they were to eat it in haste. Um, it says you shall, you shall eat it with your loins girded, uh, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. And the idea is that there's a certain sense in that the minute we get redeemed, time becomes much more precious, doesn't it? Because we're not guaranteed our next breath, but there's a sense of eternity comes in, right? And there's a sense of redeeming the time, making every minute count, uh, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, that kind of idea. It's eagerness of activity should mark the saint. So there's the one aspect of the feast, which is feeding on the lamb. The second aspect of the feast is removing leaven. Now, again, we're practical. The practical reason, verse 34, uh, we've already mentioned this, but uh, just to give you a scripture to support it, it says in verse 34 of, of chapter 12, And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their cloths upon their shoulders. So part of it was a speed element. You, you don't have time. You're, you're getting out of there, right? Egypt is done. You're on your way out, so you, you don't have time to wait for, for bread uh, dough to, to rise and all the rest of it. So, so from a practical standpoint, there was a certain rush involved. But from a spiritual standpoint, we're saying that in terms of, of a believer's sanctification, there's two sides. There's the feeding on the lamb... There's that positive side, but then there's a negative side of removing leaven from the life, removing evil. Okay, And uh, we need to, well, Scripture talks about putting on, putting off, right? Put on the new man, put off the old man. And so it's that picture we want to think about. Now, in the Bible, the principle of leaven or yeast is that it's a small thing, but it spreads secretly in quietly until it infects everything. It really speaks of 
of evil or sin in its permeating character. And sin spreads, doesn't it? Uh, how many people sinned in the beginning? What, what does it say? The Bible actually says through one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. Did it stay there? No. Death passed upon all men because why? All sinned. Right? So there's this sense that sin has that ability to spread, doesn't it? And infect everything it touches, just like yeast. And, and so it speaks of, and it, oh, by the way, in the Bible, it's, it's always, leaven is always, without exception, evil. When we get to Pentecost, we'll explain why that's the case, but it is. It's like dealing with cancer. You cut it out before it spreads and uh, it leads to long-term uh, devastation. Uh, the, the benefits of being radical in dealing with sin are seen here. And it's true, isn't it? How many bad attitudes in an assembly does it take to disturb the assembly? Usually just one, right? Because it never just stays at one, right? One bad attitude and it affects everybody, doesn't it? And so this idea of so, why don't you just see something um, as we look at the New Testament? And uh, everybody told me when this meeting starts, but nobody said when it ends. So, which could be dangerous. I won't be too long. I just want to uh, at least get going on this, and we'll we'll continue on Friday. But First Corinthians five, we mentioned um, the. The fact that these Old Testament festivals are clearly thought to be essential to understanding the New Testament. And we're going to see that the use of leaven uh, and the importance of dealing with leaven and removing leaven is a theme throughout the New Testament. And so we, we, this verse in 7 of 1 Corinthians 5, Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And so we might say that this talks about that which belongs to the old life. When somebody becomes a Christian, what does the Bible say? Anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And the more radical we are at separating from the old life, the more we'll have a more vibrant beginning to the new life. Uh, we found in Ireland, um, a lot of people had a lot of issues. We were working there as missionaries, and um, a lot of people, drink was a very much uh, an ingrained part of the culture, smoking was. And we used to say to people when we were baptized, now keep your cigarettes in your pocket, because once you go down there, you're not going to need them anymore. And we would encourage them to make a dramatic break with their old life. Because, and you know what we found? The ones that did, really did well. The ones that still wanted to hold on to the things of the old life, struggled. Now, it took them years, some of them, to finally get victory. And so the idea is this, that, that leaven needs to be dealt with, needs to be, uh, especially things connected to the old life, uh, get rid of it, deal with it immediately, as a new creature, uh, let me give you, a, again, a scripture from Leviticus. You don't have to turn there, but let me read from Leviticus 18 now and verse 3. And it says this, After the doings of the land of Egypt wherein you dwelt, shall you not do. That's very clear, isn't it? 
after the doings of the land of Egypt wherein you dwelt shall you not do. In other words, you're done with Egypt. You're done with that stuff of the old life. We'll leave that behind. Make a clean break, uh, as it were, and press on uh, in the things of Christ. Let me give you another New Testament reference, which I think is very pertinent. First um, Peter 4, verses 2 and 3, where he says, speaking of somebody who has come to Christ, that he no longer should live the rest of his life, or the rest of his time, in the flesh to do the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of your life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. And so what he's saying is, you've done enough of that stuff, right? The, the, the time past before you were saved suffices that. It's done. Forget that now. You don't longer do the will of the Gentiles, but instead you do the will of God. Uh, and there's this idea of a radical break uh, with the old life. Sometimes when you get saved, the outward things are the things that are dealt with first. The, I was giving my testimony tonight about the foul language, the smoking, the drinking, uh, those kind of things. Those were the first things to go. But some of the things that are harder to deal with are found in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8 where it says, Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And that idea of malice and wickedness, uh, carrying bad feelings against someone else, those kind of things are more difficult to deal with, aren't they? And particularly in assembly life. Isn't in these things, you know, somebody offended me 25 years ago, and I... Every time I see them, all I can think about is what they did. You know, that, that kind of attitude, that happens all the time in assemblies. And what, what Paul is saying, it's leaven. It's destructive. Get rid of it. Be, be drastic about removing leaven from your life. And, and especially these things that are maybe not outward, they're inner attitudes, but they fester and they destroy. And, and, and bitterness, it says just a root of bitterness, many will be defiled. Before it's all over, it's going to affect so many people. And, and so there's this idea that we need to deal with the, the leaven of malice and wickedness. Things that would spring out of the old man. And so he's emphasizing these things. Now, um, I believe maybe it's a good time to stop and we'll come back and look at uh, how this idea of leaven permeates the entire New Testament. In fact, the Lord Jesus is teaching. Um, he will mention the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. He'll mention the leaven of the Sadducees. He'll remember, uh, Paul will mention the leaven of evil conduct. We'll see all the way through that leaven... Is a, is a dominant theme of the New Testament and the Christian's willingness to deal with leaven. To not uh, allow it to, like to treat it like cancer. Get it, get it cut out, get it dealt with. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that there's enough in the person of the Lord Jesus to satisfy the most voracious appetite after spiritual things that we have the great inestimable privilege day after day 
of feeding on the lamb. Oh, Father, what a lamb we have in the Lord Jesus. His wisdom, his walk, his inner affections, all of these things. We pray, Father, that the saints here uh, might begin the next day feeding on the lamb. And yet, Father, too, we ask that you'd help us in this other area of sanctification that is so important, the putting away of leaven, that evil that, that needs to be dealt with as it is, uh, that needs to be dealt with drastically because of its danger and the way it spreads. So we pray, Father, for lives that would be uh, just desirous to live out uh, that Christ is not just our redemption, but he's also our sanctification. We'll give you the glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.